Well, good morning, church. If you have a copy of the Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to Psalm 51. Uh, Psalm 51, we're going to be there in just a moment. If you want to hold your place there and also turn to Psalm 32, we're actually going to begin uh, in Psalm 32 and then make our way to 51. Uh, As you can tell by some of the activity that's going on behind me, this morning is going to have a little bit of a different feel and a different approach, and that will begin to make sense here in just a little bit. Uh, But we are continuing on in our summer sermon series, Seeing God in the Psalms. We're taking a different psalm each week and looking and understanding a little bit more about the nature and character of God, who He is, and who He desires to be in our lives. And today, we're going to be looking at the God who forgives. The God who forgives. I wonder if there's ever been a time in your life where you got really, really dirty. I don't know what that's like for you. Maybe it's been a day of working in the yard uh, out in the hot sun, and you come in just feeling filthy. Uh, Maybe for some of you kiddos, it's playing a, a game of mud football and just getting filthy from head to toe. Uh, For some of you, that feeling of dirty might be uh, what I know some have done this summer, and that's go camping outdoors in the woods in Alabama in the middle of July. That can leave you feeling pretty nasty, right? Uh, I hear, though I've never done it myself, I hear that attempting to clean your own air ducts uh, will do a number on you. So whatever it is for you, that time that you got really, really dirty Did you also just want to get clean? Weren't you just ready to have that bath or that shower and get clean as soon as you possibly could? Well, for me, that experience happened about four and a half years ago. I had an opportunity to be on a mission trip with a group from Brook Hills, and we were in the mountains of Nepal. And the majority of our time spent on this trip was trekking through the Himalayas for about six days. And so we would spend about nine or 10 hours a day traveling dusty trails and rocky trails, sometimes muddy trails. And it was in very cold temperatures all the way to very hot temperatures. And we were walking through and traveling through very remote villages. And so as you might guess, there was no running water, there was no indoor plumbing, and so baths and showers were nowhere to be found. Well, at the end of six days, our group looked like this. And uh, there's smiles on a few faces, but oh, if you could smell that picture, right? Uh, We were nasty. And so covered in dirt, covered in sweat, and we're so anticipating a shower. Well, we had to wait a little bit further because from this point, we had to hop on a bus, an unair conditioned bus, and uh, so you pile all these stinky guys into the bus, and we traveled about eight hours on a rocky, bumpy, curvy bus ride down a mountain, again, on dirt roads, So you roll down the windows to get some air and the dust just pours in, right? So it just gets worse. We finally arrive at our destination and I am excited to get to the shower. I can't wait. Well, 
walk into the shower when it's my turn and I begin to size things up and realize that first of all the shower head comes to about right here all right and that's going to be a challenge and so I'm going to have to duck and turn and squat and all of those things just to get wet I get ready I go ahead I turn on the faucet and water just begins to kind of dribble out Maybe you've had one of those showers before. I was anticipating the the solid stream that was just going to fire at me, but it just dribbled out. And if it got lukewarm at best for just a few moments, that's all it did. And so it was a cold, poor pressure, low shower. And it wasn't the oasis that I had imagined when we were at that point on the mountain. Well, today we're going to hear from a man in scripture who felt really, really dirty, spiritually dirty, and he so badly wanted to be clean. We're going to hear from a man who was sick, spiritually sick, and he so badly wanted to be well. And we're going to hear from a man who was lonely, spiritually lonely, and so badly wanted to be restored in his relationship with his God. And if you're here today and you have ever felt the weight of sin on your shoulders, and maybe some of the guilt and the shame that is often associated with it, then Psalm 51 is for you today. Luther says this, Luther said, there is no other psalm which is oftener sung or prayed in the church. And I don't know if that's true, but if it is or anywhere close to it, it's probably because most of us resonate with at least some part of what we see in Psalm 51. So it was written by David, not a spiritual rookie, When he's writing this, he's considered to be a man after God's own heart, a man through whom God accomplished much. This is King David. But unfortunately, I think most of us think of David and Bathsheba more often than we think of David and Goliath, right? But David was a warrior. The Bible tells us he was a great leader. He was a musician, He was a man of great courage, of great loyalty. He was a man of great faith. But the tragic background of Psalm 51 is David's sin with Bathsheba. And we read about that account in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It was David's taking of another man's wife named Bathsheba. But not only that, but it was also his unsuccessful attempts to hide it, which included deceit, and it included cover-up, and even included the murder of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. It was an ugly blemish on an otherwise faithful life. But what I want us to do is I want us to jump to the end of the story first, and that's why I want you to look at Psalm 32, because here we see where David ended up. And I want to start with the good news of where he ended up, and then I want us to walk back into 51, and I want us to see how he got there. But let's start first with Psalm 32, verses 1 through 5. 
How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Oh, there's something freeing and beautiful about where David ended up. And what he's talking about here in Psalm 32 is exactly what he was experiencing in Psalm 51. Same account, same time, but it's the before and the after. And so we've looked at the after. Let's back up into Psalm 51. And I want us to consider the question today, how do I confess my sin to God? Because the reality is, I think most of us know that we We need or ought to confess our sin to God, but I think fewer actually know what that looks like or sounds like. And so as we walk through Psalm 51 this morning, I want to offer four parts and four pictures of what true confession looks like. And so you'll see there in your sermon notes, there's a place for you to fill in the blanks as we normally do, but there's also a space, some boxes for you to pull out your drawing skills, your art skills, right? And let's put a visual marker to the things that we're learning from God's Word. And so as we walk through, I'll display a picture at a time, and I want to encourage you to draw that there in your sermon notes. Four parts and four pictures. How do I confess my sin to God? First, be honest about your sin. Be honest about your sin. And if we're honest about our sin, we have to recognize and acknowledge, number one, that your sin deserves judgment. Deserves judgment. Let's begin there in verse one of Psalm 51. David prays this. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love. According to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. So from the outset here, David is appealing to grace and compassion from God. And the reason he's doing that is because he understands what he deserves. And if David gets what he deserves, God will be innocent. And there's absolutely nothing that David can do. There's no case that he can make in order to defend himself. And he cries for the only thing that he can cry for, and that's grace. I want you to look at Psalm 130, verse 3 here on the screen. It says, Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, Lord, who could stand? Aren't you glad there's not an app for that? We can count steps, we can count calories. I'm so glad there's not an account of my sin. But David feels the weight and the burden of the judgment that he is due. And friends, this is where true confession begins. 
And so if we're going to be honest about our sin, one, we recognize that our sin deserves judgment. But secondly, you need mercy. You need mercy. Also, verse 1, it says, according to your abundant compassion. You see, David knows that his only chance, his only way out in this deal is to plead for mercy and for grace. And when we talk about grace, we're talking about undeserved favor. We're talking about an unmerited withholding of judgment. Because the sinner understands that he can't earn righteousness. All he can do, his only hope, is to plead for mercy. And that's the essence of Old Testament salvation. I want you to think about this. It's a grace in our lives to be able to run to the mercy of the Lord. Think about that. It is a grace for us to have the possibility and the opportunity to run to the mercy of the Lord. Listen to what Paul David Tripp says, uh, the Paul David Tripp that will be here this coming weekend for our parents' conference. But he says this about God's mercy. He says, the average person on the street doesn't even recognize God's existence, doesn't care what God thinks, doesn't even think in spiritual terms, let alone cry out for the mercy of God. If there's any moment where you cry out for God's mercy, you know that grace has visited you. Your sin deserves judgment, and friend, you need mercy. But third, if we're going to be honest about our sin, need to acknowledge and admit that you're guilty, that you are guilty. Verses 2 and 3 of 51, David says, completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin, for I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Look at all the me's and my's in those verses. My guilt, cleanse me, my sin, my rebellion. Sin is always before me. He's owning this. And not only that, but David states his sin in a number of ways. He calls it sin, he calls it rebellion. A little bit later he's gonna call it evil. Some of your translations may use the word transgression or the word iniquity. And so let's talk about what David is pouring out before the Lord. What does he mean? What is he guilty of? Well, first of all, rebellion or transgression is a, it's a willing, knowledgeable stepping over of God's boundaries, Uh, A good example, a simple example that I can put in your mind to to understand what I'm talking about is this. Uh, I have a bank right around the corner here that I go to, and whenever I need to go to the ATM at this bank, I pull into the parking lot, and it's one of those walk-up ATMs, right? And so you've got to park and get out and walk up the sidewalk to it. Uh, But when you pull up, you see that right here beside the curve where there seems to be space, uh, there is a sign that says no parking. I don't know exactly what they mean by that, but when I, uh, when I come around the corner and I begin to look around and I think there's, 
there's not really that much traffic, right? I'm not going to be more than just a minute. And I begin to rationalize, and I begin to knowingly, willingly, even though I recognize there's a boundary and there's instruction and law there, I decide I'm going to do it anyway. And so I pull right up there, and it's 30 seconds, and I'm out, and I'm back, and there's someone behind me just hitting their steering wheel, right? It's a rebellion. It's a transgression. What it is is it's saying my needs are more important than anything else. It's saying I'm laying claim to rulership over my life. That's rebellion. He uses the word sin or iniquity maybe in your translation. He's referring there to a moral uncleanness. In other words, I don't just say wrong things. I don't just do wrong things or uh, have a wrong reaction, but I am wrong. And so by every definition, any way you look at it, David is is admitting, I am guilty. If you would pray one thing as a result uh, of this message this morning, pray this. Pray, Lord, open my eyes to the sinfulness of my sin. Oh God, may I no longer see sin as a beautiful thing. Because when you can get there, you you want to be changed, right? You're guilty. Not only that, you deserve judgment, you need mercy, you're guilty. We also have to accept responsibility. Accept responsibility for our sin. Verse 4, David says, against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. You know, I think one of the ways that we tend to minimize sin is we sometimes only think of its effects as horizontal, right? Just offended a person, one another, if even that at all. But what David is saying right here in verse 4 is that it's impossible for sin to ever just be horizontal, No, every sin that we commit is an act against the glory of God. Every sin that we commit is an affront to the relationship with God for which you and I were created. Not only that, notice that David blames only himself in this thing. He doesn't blame God like Adam did. He doesn't blame someone else, start pointing fingers, like Eve did. He doesn't put it on his circumstances. He doesn't just say, I've been, I've been dealt a bad hand. No, he says, I, I have done it. I'm the one. This is on me, and he takes full responsibility. And friends, this is the essence of true confession. The end of verse four there, he says, goes on to say, so you are righteous, when you pass sentence. God, you are blameless, and I am not. David says, God, if this is the end for us, if I were to end up in hell today, you would be right to give me what I deserve. 
And so don't undo your confession by minimizing your responsibility. But not only that, accept responsibility because this is who you really are. This is who you really are. Verse 5, we're just going verse by verse in 51 here. He says, indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. David says, in my mother's womb, I was sinful. So moms and dads, particularly new moms and dads, expecting moms and dads, uh, uh, birthing a baby, having a baby is a beautiful and is amazing thing. But keep in mind, that, that special day, that day of birthing a child and bringing him or her into the world, you are bringing into the world a bouncing baby sinner, right? For David, he says this was not some anomaly. This wasn't an accident or just an out of character thing for him. This wasn't a, I'm not really sure what happened, I'm actually a good person sort of thing. No, David is saying this is who I really am. I was born a sinner. And so the first image that I want to give us today, the first picture to help us remember the need to be honest about our sin is a gavel. A gavel. And so you take your space, your box there in your guide, begin to draw your best gavel, right? And let it remind you that The beginning of true confession is being honest about your sin. Recognize that you deserve judgment. Acknowledge that you need mercy. Admit that you are guilty. Be willing to accept responsibility. Why? Because this is who you really are. So how do I confess my sin to God? Number one, be honest about your sin. Secondly, be mindful of your God. Be mindful of your God. When we think about what we need to be mindful of, the first thing on our list is this, be mindful of God's holiness. Verse six, David prays, surely you desire integrity in the inner self and you teach me wisdom deep within. God, it's because of who who you are. It's because of who you are that you want to clean me up on the inside. You desire integrity because you are a God of integrity. God is a holy God. We sang a moment ago, who can rescue me from my failing? Only a holy God. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 gets it what this means for me and you, and that's this, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. See, this needs to remind us that God is not satisfied with superficial change. No, God wants to do a deep, deep clean in your life. Kathy and I, uh, in just a few weeks, are going to enter a new stage of life. We're going to enter the world of empty nesters, 
and uh, we will officially here in a few weeks have two kids in college away at school, and so our daughter Becca is going to be a senior at Mississippi State, and uh, looking forward to her wrapping that up and all the things that God has for her uh, after school this next year. Our son Braden is going to be a freshman at Auburn here in just a couple of weeks, and so praying for him and all the things that God has in store for his life. But, but one of the things that I have learned uh, over the experience of getting kids into college is that there is such a thing, there is such a category uh, as college clean, right? Let me tell you what I mean by this. So back when Becca was a freshman and we were doing what all parents of, of new college students do, we began to gather up all the supplies and things that you need for the dorm room and we needed sheets and towels and comforters and uh, all of those things, things for the bathroom. And uh, then we decided, well, we'll put together a little container of cleaning supplies. And so we went out and got the toilet bowl cleaner and the toilet brush and the 409 and the Windex and the scrubbing bubbles and, and all of that. And then it came the time for us to head off to Starkville and move her in. And that can be grueling, can it? Hot summer days and you're carrying this stuff uh, up the stairs and back down and jillions of people. Well, we survived that, set her off into her first year. She had a great first year. Nine months later, it came time to pick her up. And so uh, I go back to Starkville uh, with the vehicles, and she did a great job of having everything together, ready to just take down to the, the car. And so we started taking things back down the steps. And all of a sudden, on about the third load, I realized, huh, this is that same container of cleaning supplies that, that we started with nine months ago. And you know what? It feels like they haven't even been opened. And so there were the scrubbing bubbles, there was the 409, and it was as full as it was nine months prior, and we got down to the car, and I said, Becca, these things haven't even been opened. What have you been doing? And she said, Dad, we use wipes, right? And it was at that moment that I realized there's such a thing as college clean. And that's different than maybe my clean or your clean or regular adult clean, but it's, it's college clean, right? Those of you with college students can relate to that. Well, God is a God of holiness, and God wants to do a deep, purifying clean in us. He wants to do the type of clean that's a, God, don't just stop me in the act, but stop me long before I ever get there kind of clean. And so let's be mindful of God's holiness. Second, though, let's be mindful of God's power. God's power. Verse 7, David prays, Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. What he's saying here is, God, if, if you clean me, I will be clean. If, if you do the work. You do the purifying. I'm going to be pure. He says, I can't do it myself, but God, you're going to have to do this in my life. So the second image that I want to give us to go with being mindful of our God is a hyssop branch, right? And so it looks uh, a lot like a Texas blue bonnet, 
but it is actually a hyssop branch. And so again, draw your best hyssop branch there. Now we find this referred to at various places throughout the Bible. It is a, a plant, a shrub that is said to have, have some purifying or even medicinal kinds of qualities about it. Maybe the most notable uh, place that we find hyssop mentioned is in Exodus chapter 12. The first Passover and the Israelites were instructed to take a hyssop branch and they were to dip it in lamb's blood and then paint or brush that across their doorposts so that the angel of death would pass over them. It was God's way of marking them as pure. Well, in the New Testament, Jesus is our Passover lamb. He is the one whose blood washes away the sins of the world. And so when we go to Psalm 51 and we read hyssop, it's pointing to the atoning work of Jesus. And what David is saying here, he's borrowing this picture and he's he's praying that God would do a work of cleaning, not physically, but spiritually in his life. He says, wash me. And he says it to God because, God, you are the only one who has the power to do what I need in my life. And so, friends, when we come to God in true confession, we know that we're coming to a God that has the power to forgive. Be mindful of God's holiness. Be mindful of God's power, but also be mindful of God's willingness to forgive, his willingness to forgive. So he's already established in verse one that God is a God of compassion and a God of faithful love. But then look at verses eight and nine. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. See, David's been broken. He's been broken and now he wants the restoration that he knows God wants. And he's appealing to what he knows and believes about God's nature and God's character. Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, turn your face away from me. But he said, turn your face away from my sins. And true confession is what God has been waiting for. And when it comes, the discipline ends because he is by nature a forgiving God. And he wants to do this in your life. Look at the words of Psalm 86 here on the screen in verse five. Coincidentally or not, also the words of David He says, for you, Lord, are kind and ready to forgive, abounding in faithful love to all who call on you. David knew this to be true about God. And I think this is a good word for some of us today because my guess is in a room there this size, there is at least someone who has asked the question, could God really forgive me? 
You don't understand what I've done. You don't understand what my past is like. Why would he want to forgive me? And we're reminded from Scripture that he's a kind God who's ready to forgive. And he's abounding in faithful love to all who call on him. So how do I confess my sin? Be honest about your sin. Be mindful of your God. But third, be real with your prayer. Be real with your prayer. Verses 10, 11, and 12, David says, God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. You know, I think these verses serve as kind of the hinge to this chapter. This is where there's a turn of sorts. It's what I would consider to be the heart of David's prayer. Because verse 10 is the culmination of all that he has been saying and pouring out before God. But then verses 11 and 12 begin to speak to the, the now what. And I think there's... There's three things that we can learn from how David prays. And I want to give you these. The first is this. When you admit the gravity of your sin, you can now pray, forgive me. When you come to the point in coming to grips and being honest about your sin before God, you can pray, forgive me. The second thing that we learn is this. When you acknowledge that your heart is dirty before God, you can then pray, cleanse me. And here's where I want to give you our third picture. We think about being real with our prayer. It's a picture of a shower head, right? Doesn't that look refreshing? I don't know that it's a rain head shower, but it looks a lot like one. And so I want to contrast the shower experience that I told you about at the beginning of four and a half years ago that I struggled to enjoy, right? Well, about a month or so ago, Kathy and I had the opportunity to celebrate our 25th wedding anniversary. Our anniversary was last year, but we finally found a date to go away and do something special. And we went to a, a beautiful place, kind of a tropical location, resort-type place that was there on the beach, and it had beautiful beaches and beautiful pool and delicious food and all kinds of things to enjoy. But perhaps one of my favorite things about the place that we stayed was the shower, right? Maybe you've been to a place like this, but it was amazing. And so you walk into this shower and it's, it's gigantic, you know? There's all kinds of room. I could have slept in there if I had wanted to. And all kinds of nozzles and gadgets and all that had a kind of a regular shower like you might have in, in your home. But then right up above you, uh, high up in the ceiling, right in the center of the shower is this giant rain head shower head. And, and you could go to the faucet there on the wall and you could open that baby up and man, it was like a hydrant had been opened on you. 
And, and this cylinder of water was so big, it just, you just had to stand there. You didn't have to bend or duck or anything. You just sat there and it just soaked you. And unlimited hot water, uh, I, I could have stayed in there for hours. Took multiple showers a day just because it was that good. David, he doesn't, he doesn't just not hide his sin. He doesn't just not minimize his sin. But he comes to a point where he begs God to do a deep cleaning of the stain of sin in his life. And I wonder if you have ever prayed a prayer like that. Have you ever cried out, genuinely cried out before God in desperation for him to rain down his grace on your life? Have you ever said, God, I need a downpour. I need a downpour of grace on my life and I need you to deal with the dirt and the grime of sin that just covers me. Have you ever prayed, God, bring a, bring a deluge of your mercy onto my life. Soak it into the root system of my heart. And God, flood my soul with your forgiveness. David prays a real prayer. And when you admit that your heart is dirty, you can pray, God, cleanse me. Well, third, when you ask to be restored, you can then pray, use me. That's what he does in verses 11 and 12. He asks to be restored and begins to ask the Lord to use him. And I want us to talk uh, a little bit about about shame for just a moment because restoration is where shame begins to get eradicated from our life. And if you will allow me to, I want to carry the precipitation metaphor just one step further, okay? Because shame over time, if it lingers, becomes like a dense, heavy fog that just blankets our lives and keeps us from seeing and enjoying all that God intends for our lives. Maybe for some of you, the metaphor turns into hail, and that shame is just pounding me day after day after day. David acknowledges a proper sense of shame in Psalm 51 when he asks God to hide his face from his sins. He knows that his sin is ugly. He knows that his sin is offensive to a holy God. Yet in his repentance... He not only wants to be cleansed from sin, 
But watch this. He asks for freedom from shame when he says, restore the joy of your salvation to me. David didn't just need to stop doing what he was doing, namely going deeper and deeper in sin. He needed to start enjoying God again. He didn't just need forgiveness from his past sin, but he needed renewed joy in God to keep him from future sin. And so when you come to God in confession, ask for joy in the same way that you ask for forgiveness, not because you deserve it, but because you need it, right? Well, how do I confess my sin to God? Be honest about your sin. Be mindful of your God. Be real with your prayer. And finally, be surrendered with your life. The question here to ask is, how does forgiveness change me? How does it impact me? And ultimately, how does it impact others? Well, very briefly, I want to give you three levels of impact that I think real confession affects. And the first one is this, it affects your impact on the lost. And so David has come all the way to this point and he gets to verse 13 after he's prayed for God to clean him up and he gets to verse 13 and he prays, then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will turn to you. So the fourth picture that I have for us to go with a surrendered life, is a disciple-making conversation, okay? A disciple-making conversation. Have you ever wanted God to use your testimony? Have you ever wanted to be an effective witness You ever wanted to have a life that would point other people to Jesus? If so, you have to have a a life that is, is washed and a heart that is clean. You see, David didn't didn't simply pray for forgiveness. He didn't simply pray to be cleaned. He wasn't even satisfied in praying with just individual joy for himself, but he begged God to be able to have a life that would impact others for his glory. But friends, the reality is this. If we're going to have a life that impacts others, we need to have experienced God's pardoning grace ourselves. And until that happens, the gospel is only a theoretical message. But it's converted sinners that make for effective witnesses because they have experienced the truth of what they're saying. Your impact on the law. Secondly, true confession has an impact on your God. Verses 14 and 15, David prays, save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. 
You see, praise is what joy in God produces when obstacles are taken out of the way. When we can pray, God, deal with the stuff in my life that keeps my heart dull and my mouth shut so that I can praise you. Verses 16 and 17. He says, you do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart. You see, these verses dismiss the the notion or the idea that what God wants is more religion. You could attend church every Sunday for the rest of your life and it wouldn't remove the stain of even one sin. What he's looking for is a broken and humble or contrite heart. Listen, being broken and humble is not the opposite of joy and praise. They're they're not mutually exclusive. No, for the believer, they go together, right? I want you to think about our corporate worship. True Christian worship holds the tension between celebration and confession. We sing for joy week in and week out, and we sing for joy for good reason. But brother and sister in Christ, we must remain sober-minded about who we really are and why we need the gospel. Oh, be wary of the church that only wants to talk about the good and the positive. Every message is dreams and ambitions and fulfillment and success, but there is never any mention of sin. You see, the church worships with sincerity when it regularly confesses its own sinfulness. So your impact on the lost, your impact on your God, and third, A surrendered life affects your impact on the church. On the church. Look at the words of Psalm 66, 18 here on the screen. It says, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, in other words, if I had enjoyed or continued on in my sinning, right, the Lord would not have listened. Here's the reality. Uh, If my life is impure, then my fellowship with God is not right and my prayers don't get answered. Perhaps you've experienced that. But then David experiences this and now he can pray for his people. And he does that in verses 18 and 19. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings, and bulls will be offered on your altar. What I want us to see here is that confession or lack thereof in our lives has impact and bearing on the body of Christ. It has impact and bearing on the saints, 
Because if you continue with unconfessed sin in your life as a member of this faith family and I'm counting on you to pray for me, you're counting on me to pray for you, you see, unless our lives are pure, unless our hearts have been cleansed, then our usefulness to the lost, our usefulness to our God, and our usefulness to the body of Christ are all at stake. In just a moment, we're going to come to the tables here and celebrate communion. Uh, Before we do that, I want us to answer one more important question. And that question is this. What happens when we confess our sin? In other words, another way to say that might be, how in the world is a righteous God able to forgive sinners? How does that happen? Well, it's the miracle of grace. And Paul talks about this miracle in Romans chapter 4. Don't turn there now, you can write down the reference. But in Romans chapter 4, he actually quotes from Psalm 32, where we began a moment ago. And he uses three words, he borrows three words uh, in that quote there in verses 1 and 2 that I think are worth mentioning. And the first of the words that he uses is the word forgiven. Transgressions are forgiven. And it means there to lift or to carry away. And it reminds us of the Day of Atonement on the Hebrew calendar when the high priest would lay the sins of the nation on the head of the scapegoat and the goat was taken into the wilderness. And that was pointing to Jesus, who we know from John 1 is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so when we come to the communion table and we take the bread, what we have to remember is that this bread symbolizes the body of Jesus Christ that was provided and sent and ultimately crucified on our behalf. Sent and broken, right? The second word that's used is the word covered. Sin is covered. What that means is concealed or out of sight. And so when God covers our sin, the Bible tells us us that they are gone forever. They're removed as far as the east is from the west. And the blood of Christ, 1 John tells us this, the blood of Christ does not simply cover sin but also cleanses it. As we've talked about this morning. And so when we come to the communion table and we take this cup that's here, this symbolizes and represents the blood of Jesus that was poured out on our behalf so that our sins might be atoned for. But then there's the third word. It's actually a, a phrase, but the word charge or the phrase does not charge. What that means is does not put to one's account. The debt is fully paid. It's finally and fully forgiven. What it means there is that the record is made clean and no record will ever be kept. But how can God do that? 
And he does that through the perfect and the wonderful transaction that we know as the cross. And what happens at the cross or on the cross is that all of our sins were put to Christ's account. And he was made sin on our behalf. And then when we trust Christ and we put our faith in Jesus, his righteousness is put on our account. And 2 Corinthians 5 says it this way, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And it's this miraculous exchange that makes our forgiveness and our salvation possible. And so when you feel the pain of conviction, when circumstances or an individual point out and reveal sin in your life, don't wallow in guilt. Don't hide in shame. Don't fear being known. Why? Because the blood of Jesus has covered it all. And you can run. You can run into the presence of a holy God. And you can confess your sin and you can once again receive his forgiveness. So Brooke Hills, as you head into this week, Let me give you these encouragements. Spend some time in Psalm 51, but then don't stay there. Toward the end of the week, spend some time in Psalm 32. And as you do that, ask God to shine the the spotlight, His spotlight onto your life and begin to expose sin that may need to be confessed. And as he brings those things to the surface, learn to practice true confession and be honest about your sin and be mindful of your God and be real with your prayer and be surrendered with your life. And then find a lost friend that you can tell about the, experience, the forgiveness that you have experienced.